On today's show, can you change who you are as a team? Can you change who you are as a player? Can you change who you are as a coach? Before we get there, I want to give you one reason why gambling should be legal everywhere. Saturday, Boise State hosts the Oklahoma State Cowboys. Boise State is laying three and a half points. That is the bet that I'm going with because it's been a great opening to the season for the Boise State Broncos from a gambling perspective. They're one and one overall. However, they've covered both games. Week one against UCF, they lose by five outright, cover with six points in their back pocket. Unfortunately, get outscored 22-7 in the second half of that game. Last Friday, they play the poor UTEP Miners, and they just thump on them. They force six turnovers. They beat them by 41 points. They have blue turf, which I don't fully understand. People seem to love. That's something that just, who knows? I'm throwing it out there. I don't know if it factors into our bet. Oklahoma State, however, has played a pair of squeakers. Week one, they beat Missouri State by seven points as 33-point favorites. Not great. Last week, I watched all of their game against the Tulsa Golden Hurricane. They have to outscore Tulsa 21-9 in the fourth quarter of that game to win by five as 11.5-point favorites. Their offense seems to be completely stuck in the mud. Just a wagon broken down without a wheel, sinking down into the wild blue yonder. I don't like betting offenses that are stuck in the mud. Their coach is Mike Gundy, who's kind of an angry dude who has a mullet. And while I do enjoy betting on angry people with mullets, I will not if they coach offenses that are not very good. So... We have our reason why gambling should be legal everywhere because we all need financial incentives to watch an angry man with a mullet coach a stuck-in-the-mud offense on the bluest Smurf turf the world has ever seen. And now, Sports with Chris Rawl. I am feeling nostalgic today because Nebraska and Oklahoma take the field together again on Saturday at 12 Eastern time. I was there the last time these two teams were on a field together. It was December of 2010. It was the Big 12 championship game. It was the last Big 12 game that Nebraska will ever play. Uh, They jumped out to a 17-0 lead. I was a very happy little corn cob. And things went south quickly, and Nebraska ended up losing in a three-point heartbreaker. Um, But now it's back. Uh, It's been the iconic rivalry of Nebraska football. Famous Tom Osborne, Barry Switzer matches that decided so much about the Big 8 and the national title race in the 70s and the 80s, even into the 2000 and the 2001 games. They played a large role in shaping the national title race. 2000, Oklahoma Boat Races, Nebraska. En route to a national title, 2001. Reverse pass, Mike Stunts to Eric Crouch to win the game as Nebraska went and played for a national title that year. This year, the power dynamics have changed drastically because ever since 2001, Nebraska has not been very good and they enter into this game as 22.5-point underdogs going on the road to Norman. And as I watch this team as a fan of them, I'm truly grasping at straws when it comes to their ability to play a normal game against any opponent, much less an opponent of the caliber of the Oklahoma Sooners. Now, on July 26th, I recorded an episode of this show titled The Capacity to Change, and it revolved around a question that I really like discussing over and over. Can you morph into somebody else entirely, 
or are you always going to revert back to your base form? It's a very interesting question in how it applies to just people in general in life. Capacity to change for any individual I could talk about for all day, every day. It's very interesting when it comes to the world of sports, when it comes to teams, when it comes to coaches, when it comes to individual players. So for the purposes of today's discussion, I kind of want to circle into one of each of those things, one team, one coach, one player. And I want to talk about this idea, the capacity to change, uh, just the old cliche, can you teach an old dog new tricks, all of that kind of stuff. I'll start in the collegiate game before we progress to the professional game. And I'm going to stay with Nebraska because of Saturday's game. Because this is the team that I watch the most closely. This is the team that I follow the most closely. And the question that I always come back to with this team is, can you stay out of your own way? It's the idea that before you can be good, you have to not be bad. Baby steps, right? You don't snap your fingers and magically become a good team, much less a national title contender. You have to be able to just do the basic things that a football game requires first and foremost. That would be not turning the ball over willy-nilly. That would be not taking double-digit penalties every game. That would be as simple stuff as getting a play call in on time and having everybody know what the play call is. Just really basic stuff that as a fan, I'll take for granted because I just watch the game and I'm not there in practice every day and around it. But it's stuff that has to be installed and instilled by a coaching staff into players. So Nebraska for over a decade has had an incredible penchant for shooting itself in the foot. An ability that has transcended coaching staffs, whether Bill Callahan back in the mid-2000s, on to Bo Pelini, on to Mike Riley, now on to Scott Frost. This team is continually high on penalty charts, take them every game, nonstop, usually at the worst possible times. They're continually at the bottom of the nation in turnover margin. Two areas that it's really hard to consistently win football games if you are losing the penalty and the turnover battle all the time. So as a team, it comes into the question of the episode. Can you change who you are? Nebraska, I am getting more depressed and unwilling to believe that they can by the day because it's gone on for so long. Let's just look right at last week's game against the Buffalo Bulls. Not a particularly fearsome opponent. They come into Memorial Stadium to play Nebraska in that game. Nebraska has three touchdowns called back via penalty. Three. They have a kicker, Connor Culp, who attempts three field goals from 32 yards, 34 yards, and 42 yards. He misses all three. They have a punt return team that is just a tire fire. A punt return team that in three games this season, three seems to be the magic number now that I'm saying this all out loud. They've played against Illinois. They lost week one. They played against Fordham. They pounded them week two. They played against Buffalo last week. They played three games. And in each of those, the punt return team has muffed and turned the ball over once. Three consecutive games. So you see it in individual games. You see it as a thread that is woven into a larger tapestry. This is a team that always shoots itself in the foot over and over and over. So when you realize, hey, 
I know everybody wants Nebraska football to be good that follows the team, but before you can be good, you have to not be bad. And now Oklahoma's on deck. One of the five teams that matter, national title contender, top five team. And me as a fan, I have a baseline wish. It's just don't make it easier for Oklahoma than it needs to be. You know, can you teach an old dog new tricks? (laughs) Can this team... A 22.5-point underdog, which will have to play a very good football game just to be competitive, much less stay within that number and cover. Can this team go against what it has been in the past, including the three games that has already played this season? So now I want to kind of move to the NFL game. I've talked a lot about professional football this week. I'll talk about it a lot more as the season progresses. Monday, I recorded a show all about coaching. Um, And the first half of that show is about Mike McCarthy, just the bozo of all bozos. Watched him for 15 years as a coach, and he has coached one way his entire career, unwilling to change in any way, shape, or form. So now, for purposes of this show... We start asking the question when it comes to coaching, you know, can you change who you are as a coach, your natural base instinct, how you want to coach a football game? Can you change that? Mike McCarthy has shown throughout his entire career that he is unwilling to change. He has a very simple philosophy, stay conservative, kick field goals, and he seems content to coach that way until we are all dead. That is the way that he has determined his coaching career will play out, which is fine. A lot of coaches, I think, are that way. I don't know if it's the stubbornness of coaching. I don't know if it's just how tough it is to have a malleable fit for your opponent game plan every single week in the way that the best coach of all time, Bill Belichick, does. Uh, it's interesting to bring him up in this context because as you talk about, can you change who you are as a coach, Bill Belichick has formed an identity around change and malleability. Uh, He's never just said, this is who we are and this is what we play and the opponent is going to know what we're doing coming into the game and we're just going to do it better than them. Belichick has always looked across the field and said, what do they do? All right, how do we take that away? That's why you've seen a million different game plans from the Patriots over the course of time, especially on the defensive side where Belichick has the most dabbling ability. And then they're playing the Kansas City Chiefs and you're going, well, I've never, how are they taking away Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey? And oh my gosh, oh, they're just double teaming both of them and saying, let somebody else beat us. And oh, wait, the very next week they're playing a smash mouth football team and now they're doing something completely different. That's how Bill Belichick has made 10 Super Bowls and, and won a bunch of them. A stark contrast to the Mike McCarthy way, which can still be successful in the right hands. The stick-to-your-gun style, this is who we are, and everybody's going to know it's coming. However, it just makes life a lot harder in a sport where the margins are thin. So I bring up McCarthy because in a roundabout way, uh, we we have a coach who I want to talk about today that comes from that similar vein. Vic Fangio of the Denver Broncos. Head coach there, he's been there for... Two full seasons now entering into his third. He's one of the greatest defensive coaches of his time. Uh, Most recently before being hired as head coach of Denver, 
as the defensive coordinator for San Francisco in those fearsome defenses under Harbaugh, and then as the defensive coordinator of the Chicago Bears. Now, if you follow this sport closely, you know that the tendencies of a defensive mastermind turned head coach, they're usually very predictable in the same way that McCarthy is, even though he's an offensive coach, which makes no sense. But again, that's neither here nor there. Your typical defensive coach, let's stay conservative. Let's take the points when they're available. Let's play for field position. Let's just bleed the clock and hope that the game goes our way because fate wants it to rather than us seizing the game itself. In his first two seasons in Denver, Fangio has leaned into that style, the stereotype of a defensive coach turned head coach. He's leaned into that style with limited success. Denver, they haven't been particularly good. And not all of that is on his plate. However, when you're trying to maximize your team's ability to win, uh, this kind of stuff on the margins matters. So I watch the entire Broncos-Giants game on Sunday. And in that game, maybe a new man emerges from that. Maybe we're seeing the ability of a coach to change what they naturally want to do on the football field. I'm going to read something from Mike Sando of ESPN. Fangio emerged from last season winless in September, 0-7, during his two seasons in Denver and under some fire for his game management. But against the Giants, Fangio was suddenly reborn. He went for it on fourth down three times in the first three quarters and succeeded every time adding 9.6 expected points on those three plays alone. There have been 28 go-for-its on fourth down in the first three quarters of games so far this week, more than for any week on record. And here was Fangio leading the way. The Broncos had never gone for it more than once in the first three quarters of a game in 32 previous outings with Fangio as head coach. These weren't all sneaks on fourth and inches either. Fangio went for it on 4th and 7 from the plus 37 in the first quarter. The Broncos were too far away for an easy field goal, but too close to feel great about punting. They gained 15 yards on the play, end quote. So an incredible amount of pertinent information within this paragraph from Mike Sando. A lot of stuff that I really like diving into when it comes to football. First thing, a lot of people going for it on 4th down in the first three quarters. Uh, You take those first three quarters Because the fourth quarter, it's skewed, obviously, depending upon game situation. So the first three quarters, you get a clear picture of what a coach naturally wants to do, how they naturally want to coach a game. This was going into the Monday night game, where we saw more fourth down go for it. But going into that game, more than any week on record, we're seeing coaches in the first three quarters go for it on fourth down. Uh, This taps into Monday's episode, a lot of what I was talking about in that show. This is an offensive league. It's ruled by offense. And if you truly want your offense to come and win, then give it every opportunity to do so. That means going for it on fourth down in plus territory. So the next bit of information from this paragraph. Yes, they convert all of them. That, that, in my opinion, is always a side point. I'm never the person who, if you go 0 for 3 on fourth down, will say, what an idiot coach, totally screwed him over. And then when they go 3 for 3 on fourth down, go, oh, just 
called the perfect game. He's the reason the team won. We got to tip our cap. I'm never that person. I'm a big process over results guy. So they get the fourth downs. That's a side piece, side point. What is important is that we're seeing Vic Fangio lean into a different process from the past. Coached 32 previous games. And never went for it more than once in the third quarter of, or in those three quarters of any single game. And now, week one, all right, maybe we're seeing a change in philosophy. Maybe we're seeing a defensive coach say, hmm, this is an offensive league. And teams are getting a leg up over mine simply because I'm trying to play and coach a conservative style of football. So maybe we can tweak our identity. Maybe we can develop it in a different way. Maybe we can be more aggressive in this league that is most definitely offensive. You know, is it possible? This is one week. It's not. It could just be he reverts back to what he's done before in week two and moving forward. You never really know when it comes to the question of change. And is it possible for Fangio to change the natural way that he wants to coach a football game. Is it possible? I mean, we're going to see that play out over the course of this season. Very interesting, just side note to make as we're watching all of these football games. Is week one an aberration for the way that Fangio wants to coach? Or is it a testament to somebody's capacity to change? There's another coach from the past that kind of tapped into this ability to change who you are as a coach. Riverboat Ron, Ron Rivera. When he was coaching with the Carolina Panthers, they end up making the Super Bowl. Cam Newton wins the MVP. They lose there against the Broncos. However, Ron came from a similar train of thought to the McCarthy's and to the Fangio's and to the majority, the stereotype of football coaches throughout all of time. The stubborn, play conservative, kick field goal style of coach. And that season, for whatever reason, he became Riverboat Ron, the gambler. And he said, we got the MVP of football, Cam Newton. And you know who is better in short-yarded situations than this tank of a human being that can also throw the ball a million miles downfield? Nobody. So if we have fourth down in plus territory, well, instead of punting it or kicking field goals like we do in the past, I'm now Riverboat Ron and we're going for it. And a lot of that mindset transferred into the team and it fueled in small part, which again, that's, it's an oxymoron, but the small part that it was, was a big part because these margin things, they build up over time. And so what was a small part, just a coaching decision to go for it on fourth down, it trickled upwards and, and became part of the identity of that team. Be aggressive and trust in ourselves to seize control of the game rather than just wait for the other team to screw up. So we're going to stay in week one and we're going to talk about, can you change as a player? And there's one player in particular that I think embodies this more than anyone else when it comes to capacity to change, whether or not it's possible, and who we as football fans are just going to be monitoring as this season goes on. Jameis Winston, quarterback of the New Orleans Saints. A man who everybody for all of time, myself included, has looked at and said, if you can extract the turnover gene that resides inside him, and retain all of that high-level talent that also resides with him, you will have one of the best quarterbacks 
in the NFL. He has that talent. We've seen it. Um, we've seen it since his freshman year at Florida State. When he steps in and he's leading them to the national championship, he's throwing for 4,000 yards, 40 touchdowns, and 10 picks. And the following year, we see more glimpses of that turnover gene, that erratic side of Jameis Winston. Things are a bit rockier. Florida State, they make the playoff in its first year. That's great. But Jameis throws for 25 touchdowns against 18 interceptions. Turnovers were the name of the game that year for Florida State. And it's fitting that the most famous play of that season for him and for that team was in the playoff against Oregon. He takes a snap. He's stumbling backwards. He's all out of sorts. And he just wildly chucks it and the ball goes straight backwards. And Oregon picks it up, runs off for a touchdown. Uh, the iconic play from an Oregon route of Florida State. However, we still all felt just take away this turnovers. An NFL team can coach them out of him, and then you will have one of the best quarterbacks. That's why Tampa swoops in and drafts him number one overall in the 2015 draft. However, for the next five years as starting quarterback, there's a ton of ups. There's a ton of downs kind of culminating in his final season as starter there when he becomes the first quarterback in the history of the NFL to throw at least 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions in the same season. An unreal blend of the highs and the lows, right? So Tampa looks at itself and says, we have a really, really, really good football team. And we think we are being held back by this incredibly erratic dude under center. We can't live with it anymore. Five seasons, it's too much. So they say, Jameis, you got to go. Get out of here. And we think if we find somebody who's not throwing 30 interceptions in a season, we can be a really good football team. So they swap him out for a dude who doesn't throw 30 interceptions in a season, Tom Brady. And indeed, a Super Bowl team was there all along. So Jameis has to go and sit in timeout for a year as this is going on. Back up on the New Orleans Saints. For those people who want to build an alternate path for Jameis moving forward, people who believe, yeah, this guy can change. He can take away what he has always been. Sitting under Drew Brees and Sean Payton for a year is a pretty good place to start. One of the smarter quarterbacks the sport has ever seen. One of the smartest offensive minds the sport has ever seen. Now, week one, they thump on Green Bay. And... For purposes of this question of Jameis's capacity to change, the returns are positive. Now, the game was not about him in any way, shape, or form. And I say that as the most complimentary thing I could possibly conjure up for what Jameis needs to be for the Saints in present day. They don't need gunslinging, wheeling, and dealing Jameis who's bringing 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions to, into play. They need what they got on Sunday. The most unjameous stat line of his entire career. He only attempts 20 passes. He completes 14 of them for a mere 148 yards. Five touchdowns, no picks. The five touchdowns caught a lot of people's eyes. And everybody goes, oh my gosh, Jameis played such a great game. As a person who was watching the game, I said, 
Jameis played a great game in his ability to manage it, something I never would have ever paired together with the name Jameis Winston based on everything I've ever seen. He wasn't slinging it all over. Green Bay was just a total tire fire on defense. And he was content to manage the game in the way that Peyton and New Orleans needed because they were physically dominating Green Bay up front. And when you have an offense that's doing that, you say, well, let's just do this until they stop us. And Green Bay couldn't. So it was run Alvin Kamara, run Tony Jones, get five yards, get eight yards, get six yards. When we need to pass, make sure it is safe. Don't try to fit it through four defenders like Jameis has been known to do throughout his entire career. In the game, he only has one Jameis throw from the past. He throws an interception to Darnell Savage in the end zone with the Saints already up 24-3 at the time that ends up being negated by a bogus roughing the passer call. Should have had one interception on the stat line instead he has zeros. The main point is when you throw the ball 20 times and you have one pass that is old Jameis and 19 passes that were game manager Jameis, that's a good place to start if you are the New Orleans Saints. If you are looking at yourself and saying, we have one of the better rosters in football, much like Tampa looked at itself last year or two years ago when they were getting rid of Jameis, we feel a similar vibe. Hey, we don't need you to throw a million passes every game. We have a very good defense. We have a lot of talent on our offense that if you just get them the ball safely, they can do work. Let's see what we can do with that and then go from there. And if we need to start being more aggressive and turning, wheeling and dealing Jameis loose, then we will make the assessment about that happening at that time. So Sean Payton and the Saints, they're making a big bet that Jameis is capable of changing, that they can mitigate that turnover gene and retain a lot of that high-level stuff. The one pass that really caught everybody's eyes, granted it, it happened when the game was out of reach. New Orleans is up 31-3 at the time. It's their final touchdown of the game. He throws a perfect dime downfield, 50-yard bomb, touchdown, and that's the one that catches everybody's eye because New Orleans did not have that last season. I saw a stat from Mike Renner of PFF earlier today. Drew Brees last season did not attempt a pass 40 yards downfield, not one. Limited arm strength, we saw that little noodle man. That's why he's now retired. One of the greatest quarterbacks ever, but his arm was shot by last season. He only attempted five passes over 30 yards all of last season. As Sean Payton gets more comfortable with Jameis, well, we know Jameis can throw the ball downfield, and that's an element of their offense that can now be expanded if you trust him to not throw it up for grabs and make all these turnover-worthy plays of the past. The Saints, they don't need 30-30 Jameis. They need measured in control Jameis, which we've only seen for one week in his entire career. Last week, week one against Green Bay. Is it an aberration? Or, like the Fangio question, is it possible that we can see a new different version of Jameis Winston moving forward throughout this season? If you're looking for an example in that vein to give you hope about the capacity to change, especially when it comes to a quarterback that is known to force the ball. Then we can examine Brett Favre and his 2009 season with 
the Minnesota Vikings. Brett Favre, one of the best quarterbacks ever. However, a man who never saw a throw that he did not like. He became starter in 1992 for Green Bay. And all the way up until that season with Minnesota, these were his interception totals. I'm going to read them off to you year by year because they're actually quite astounding. Starting in 1992, 13, 24, 14, 13, 13, 16, 23, 23, 16, 15, 16, 21, 17, 29, 18, 15, and 22. Three different times in that time frame, Brett Favre leads the league in interceptions thrown. Has a career interception percentage of 3.3%. Again, he had all that high-level stuff and more. About as good as anybody ever who has played the position. He also had that turnover gene. So Minnesota acquires him. And they say, listen, we have a very good football team in place. Much like the Saints have in present day. Uh, And we're going to put you, Brett Favre, into the framework of a good scheme. We're going to put a dude named Adrian Peterson right behind you, the best tailback in football. And we are going to trust that we can get a different player than in the past. We don't need 1996 MVP Brett Favre that's the gunslinger of all gunslingers. That'd be great. We'd love an MVP Brett Favre. However, we need you to straddle the line between being aggressive and being a manager that does not turn the ball over. And to Brett Favre's credit, that's what they got that year. Minnesota goes 12-4 and on the season. Brett Favre throws for 4,200 yards, 33 touchdowns, and most importantly, seven interceptions. Seven. Think of that number in the context of every single one of those seasons that I just read to you. His interception percentage, 1.3%. For my money, the Minnesota Vikings had the best team in football that season. However, this particular tale has a sad ending because the Minnesota Vikings make the NFC title game. Ironically enough, for purposes of this show, against the New Orleans Saints, they go into the Superdome. It is the Bounty Gate game. Greg Williams, defensive coordinator for New Orleans, puts a literal bounty on Brett Favre's head. Says, if you take him out of the game, you get X amount of dollars. Uh, And Brett Favre in that game, a, a very old man, he's played his entire career since 1992. Uh, He's just beat to hell in that game. Uh, It it was a true testament to one of the enduring themes of Favre's career, which was his ability to get back up, his ability to say, I'm hurt, uh, but I'm going to continue playing because that is part of who I am. That part that, hey, this is my base form. Uh, Brett Favre at his core was like truly a tough football player. And would just play through anything and everything. That game, he's getting smashed. And there are probably five different times in that game I'm watching it going, he's got a lead. I'm sure that he just broke his ankle. And to his credit, he's not taking any plays off in the midst of bounding it. So it's an incredible football game. And there's less than 20 seconds to go. It's tied game. Minnesota has the ball at the edge of field goal range. And Brett Favre, who has the game in his hands, 
a dude who has thrown a lot of interceptions over the course of his career, but that season did a very good job of taking care of the football. He makes an ill-advised cross-body toss down the middle that Troy Porter picks off. And so now Minnesota, which was at the edge of field goal range, instead of being able to attempt a field goal that would have put them in the Super Bowl, now we're heading to overtime. The New Orleans Saints win the coin toss. This is at a time when it was completely sudden death. Any points on the board, game is over. So the Minnesota Vikings offense does not get to see the field because the Saints march right down. They kick a field goal, Garrett Hartley. Game over for Minnesota. Season over for Minnesota. And we arrive at a very interesting examination of change. Um, People make mistakes, you know. That's just a fact of life. I make a trillion mistakes every time I record the show, actually. Anytime I do anything in life. And that's just built into human nature and experience. And so more times than not, I just easily say, yeah, that's just a mistake. I don't think it ties into some larger narrative or issue or any of these things. Just people are imperfect. They're flawed, right? For purposes of today's discussion, this is a very just interesting one miniature moment. Because you can look at it in one of two ways. You can look at it in that imperfect, flawed human prism and just go, yeah, that was just simply a bad decision by Brett Favre at the worst possible time. Biggest play of the season, biggest game, um, made a bad throw. Or when it comes to this philosophical discussion of change, was this the truest version of Brett Favre coming out at the worst possible time. That gunslinger, that dude who was always willing to push the envelope, which led him to three MVPs and a Super Bowl title and one of the greatest quarterbacking careers in the history of football. Not saying it's a bad thing, but was it that? Just how much can you retrain your body and your mind to be something different than what it once was? And will that hold up in the highest possible pressure moments, in the biggest possible games, that kind of stuff? It's a very interesting thought. I I don't really have an answer to that. But for purposes of this show and this football season, these are all things to think about and monitor moving forward, whether it's with Nebraska. Can you be something different? Can you not muff every punt? Can you make 32-yard field goals? Can you not just take an ill-advised holding call on a touchdown? Just simple stuff like that. Can you be not bad? In order to become good. It's kind of the dance that they are going through. It's the same dance that the Denver Broncos. They're going to be doing with Vic Fangio as their head coach. And these fourth down calls. Is that an aberration in week one? And when the pressure really starts to ratchet up. And your job is on the line. Or a playoff berth is on the line. Or you're in the playoffs. And your season is on the line. Are you going to be willing to say it's fourth and three at the 30? Let's go for it instead of kicking a 47-yard field goal. Something to monitor. Same dance with the New Orleans Saints and Jameis Winston as their starting quarterback. Again, I think Sean Payton is one of the very best offensive coaches I've ever watched. And I think he can do an incredible amount with Winston as his quarterback. And spoon-feed him a lot of plays and concepts that will make it impossible for Jameis to be old Jameis. However, 
there's going to be a lot of opportunities, and especially when the pressure starts to ratchet up, where Jameis is going to be back in the pocket and pressure's going to be there, and he's going to have a man 30 yards downfield covered by three people, and he's going to have to make a decision of, am I willing to take a sack or check down for two yards and live to fight another day, or am I just going to unleash it? This is all tying into the question of the episode and a question that I just love thinking about in life and in sports. Can you morph into something different or will you always revert back to your base form? Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel at CEO.com.